Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. So this week I'm going to be diving back into this uh, Leading for Impact series that I've been working on, this uh, empathic leadership model. And uh, it just seems to keep giving. Um, So uh, as I said in my last um, episode on this, uh, I was kind of riffing, exploring ideas uh, that I'd started on social media. I'd kind of moved on to the podcast and that I was then going to turn this into a blog. Uh, Well, I attempted to to write this up and discovered that I had missed a really important precursor, a step that you have to go through before you can responsibly uh, uh, influence uh, others in your leadership role. Uh, and so um, it was kind of, a, it started off as a kind of an introductory paragraph and then it turned into an entire blog in its own right. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of really important material here because, um, yeah, great, that might be the goal I want to influence. Um, and, uh, and I think that uh, to be an effective leader, you will need to influence. Uh, but there are different types of influence, and the danger is that we fall into the trap of manipulative or coercive um, uh, influence, so, which is, of course, a form of leadership, and we see it uh, on a regular basis, um, and maybe we experience it on a regular basis, even worse. Uh, but ideally, we're looking at a, a kind of influence which happens uh, in empathic mode. This is, uh, as I'm saying, an empathic leadership model. Uh, and so what is, how does an empathic leader influence? Uh, well, it's certainly not through manipulation and coercion. And yet, we can all fall into that trap. And that includes me. And, uh, and I think that uh, the story that I'm going to share uh, just shows how easy it is to slip into that. Uh, but in this uh, this uh, this episode, I'm going to, to draw on what I've written, so I will read in part and, and riff in part, um, but I'll mainly uh, read from uh, from the blog. Because uh, as I've kind of worked through my thinking on this, I've realised that there's actually a lot that we can do in this space that will enable us to read our own uh, physical, emotional uh, and other warning signs uh, to spot when we might be falling into those traps. And this is not just a kind of an ethical precursor to uh, to influencing. <clears throat> Uh, this, uh, I'm going to suggest, is is part and parcel of the whole approach of how we influence if we want to do so in a way which is empathic and therefore puts ourselves in the shoes of those we want to influence and influences for their good, not for our gain. So uh, I'm going to move to the blog at this point. Um, It's going to be a shorter than average uh, episode. The blog isn't particularly long, but I think uh, you're going to take some really useful lessons from this. So impactful leaders influence those around them, but we've all come across leaders who sought to be influential but lacked humility and so resorted to coercion and manipulation to get things done. 
These kinds of leaders use sticks and carrots to threaten or extrinsically incentivize people to do what they want. For example, they might give praise, a carrot, or threaten disapproval, a stick. Or they might promise a promotion, carrot, or disciplinary action, a stick. But there is another way. Instead of tempting people with carrots or threatening them with sticks, it is possible to help people cultivate their own rewards, whether or not they care for carrots. Give someone a carrot and they'll do what you want as long as you supply them with carrots. Help someone grow their own supply of carrots, or whatever motivates them most, and their intrinsic motivation will push them to far greater things than your stick or carrot could ever have done. The empathic leader is naturally influential because they understand what drives the people they lead, and they can tap into those intrinsic motivations to help people to achieve their own aspirations. And who wouldn't want to follow someone who could do that? I'll discuss this in more depth in my next blog, which I am co-authoring at the moment. Uh, I've got a couple of people, um, hopefully, who'll be helping me with this. Um, uh, and this is uh, going to be uh, revisiting uh, the last uh, episode of the podcast. Um, and uh, I may or may not um, create an ep episode about this, depending on um, how similar or different this is to, uh, to what you've already heard. Uh, but that's coming up. But before you go any further in that quest to become influential, I think there is this really crucial precursor that I've just alluded to, without which your attempts to influence might end in disaster. Although well-meaning, well influencing methods can easily be weaponized to become a means of manipulation. Dale Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, didn't become a bestseller because it helped people form deeper relationships. It did so because it enabled them to make friends with the right people and gave them tools to extract what they wanted from their new friends. Governments around the world haven't set up nudge units to help people achieve their personal goals. They've done so because the evidence suggests they can exploit cognitive biases to get people to achieve the government's objectives more effectively and at lower cost than policies based on either sticks or carrots. It doesn't matter if you're trying to extract personal favours from someone powerful or you're using evidence from research to influence policy for public good. You need to understand your motives and the needs of those you're working with if you want to influence rather than manipulate. It is this empathic connection between your own motives and the needs of others that is the secret to using your influence to drive impact. If that is, like me, you define impact as the benefits we facilitate for others. What is the difference between influence and manipulation? Well, when I'm training researchers in influencing skills, I regularly ask people to tell me the difference between influence and manipulation. And people find this question surprisingly challenging, as the difference is pretty subtle. 
uh, on the surface of things, using your data and models to help shape a new government scheme that will tackle child poverty whilst saving public funds sounds like influence rather than manipulation, surely. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with this if you're convinced that your evidence will help achieve a policy goal for public good and you work hard to make sure the relevant policy teams understand the solutions you're proposing. Whether these teams actually use your work or not is up to them, and they'll have to balance your evidence against other data and lines of argument in the decision that they ultimately make. However, this seemingly innocent attempt to influence others for good may slide into, in, into manipulation if you end up doing one of four things. So, the first of these is the fact that you might, in fact, be personally invested in the outcome and might benefit in some way, even if indirectly. For example, you might be able to claim to your funders or institution that you've achieved impact, giving you a greater chance of funding or promotion. The second issue is that uh, you might not be transparent about the potential benefits to you. And of course, although it's a bit awkward, I think that being transparent up front is much less embarrassing than the reactions that you might get when you come back to ask for a testimonial later on when you didn't tell people this was ultimately how you wanted to use it. Three, uh, this can go wrong, it can turn into manipulation if you aren't actually completely sure about the advice you're giving, or you think you are sure but you haven't had time to look at the wider evidence. Or finally, if you need to be dishonest to achieve your goal. Even if you think your work could change the world, the end does not always justify the means. This may be a seemingly innocent as not acknowledging findings that conflict with your research, or a serious as breaching confidentiality for the greater good. So, uh, great, I'm uh, trying to achieve impact. I'm doing all this stuff, working hard with policy teams for something which is clearly a public good, surely. And yet, I haven't understood uh, or been transparent about the fact that I might, whether directly or indirectly, benefit from this. Uh, and as a result, uh, people now feel manipulated when they find out that I've benefited, whether or not I intended that. Uh, or, more seriously, this idea that we're not entirely sure, or we think we're sure, but we haven't really checked all of the evidence. Uh, we're reliant on our project, uh, and of course our funders often very much encouraging us to do this. Uh, we want impact from our investments, not someone else's research, and yet that responsibility to make sure that we have um, uh, built on the shoulders of giants, that we are indeed looking at those broader bodies of work, not just our latest. Uh, piece of the picture. Uh, and uh, yeah, being uh, dishonest, uh, well of course none of us are dishonest, um, at least not consciously, and yet we can slip into this uh, when I just let something slip. Um, uh, or I don't uh, acknowledge the fact that there is another body of work that says the opposite thing to me. Uh, and I could say that, but why would I do that when it's going to confuse people, I say to myself. Uh, and yet, when people go away and read the wider literature and discover that there is a whole other body of work that says the opposite thing, all of a sudden I feel like I have uh, been lied to, worst case scenario, at least that something has been, dis uh, has been uh, held back, withheld from me. <clears throat> and that's not uh, going to go down well. <clears throat> 
So being transparent about potential conflicts of interests, uh, I would argue, isn't actually that hard. Uh, and transparency is the answer to dealing with any kind of conflict of interest. I think people are naturally suspicious of people who offer to do things for free, thinking that there must be some catch somewhere. I just need to look harder. <laughs> uh, perhaps they might be thinking, uh, you are going to expect something in return. A favour for a favour. Uh, let's just wait and see. There must be something you're hiding. Uh, and whether consciously or not, people are on their guard. And as a result, there is an almost palpable sense of relief sometimes when I explain that my, ha my employer is happy for me to do this work pro bono on the basis that I might be able to give them something back uh, in terms of impact. Great, so you are going to get something back from this. Fantastic, I know what that is now. I don't have to keep looking and wondering and being suspicious. By being transparent, you are increasing your trustworthiness and decreasing the likelihood that people feel manipulated by their interactions with you. Although you might be comfortable with your own motives and know that you're working for the interests of the other person or organisation or the public good, the people you are working with cannot see your motives and will not automatically trust you just because you're a researcher. However, radical transparency requires humility, which can be hard when someone has approached you for advice as the expert. It's easy to get carried away and begin extrapolating and inferring answers from your general knowledge and forget to add the necessary caveats if you end up straying from the evidence into informed conjecture. The problem, however, is that this sort of thing creeps up on you. And you tend not to realise until after you have said something you regret. This is often because your mind is so preoccupied with the conversation you're having that there isn't space for the metacognition you need to realise that you are about to fall into a trap of your own making. That's why I like to use a very different form of knowledge to keep my feet on the ground. Embodied knowing. If I, can remind, if I can remain mindful enough to detect physical sensations, then my body can supply me with information that can prompt me to do the metacognition and put the brakes on if necessary. The easiest of these sensations to detect often comes too late, but it can still act as a useful warning light to help you correct your course mid-conversation and avoid disaster. Think back to times in the past when you made errors of judgement, whether professional or personal, and analyse what warning signs you missed in the lead-up to your mistake. As you identify each point at which you could have intervened to prevent what ultimately, ultimately happened, ask how you felt emotionally and where you felt this in your body. For me, there's a subtle tightening in my chest that betrays a rising anxiety, telling me there's something wrong. What is it for you? But in my experience, that tightening in the chest is often my final warning. Before this, there is often a more subtle sense of excitement. That sense of exhilaration you get when you're about to jump off a high wall, and you're pretty confident that you can make it, but not absolutely certain. 
as my heart rate increases, I experience this as a swelling of my chest, the puffing up of pride, telling me that I have enough expertise to blag this, as I'm almost certain to be right. Where and how do you experience the reckless confidence of pride? As you look back over the examples of past errors of judgment in your own life, can you detect points early, uh, early on in these trajectories where pride might have encouraged you to throw caution to the wind? Sometimes there is a third physical symptom that points me to a deeper, longer-term dissonance. For me, this is neck pain, but for others I know it's back pain, or it could be some other physical symptom that uh, you've worked out over the years correlates with stress, often exacerbated by poor lifestyle choices that are driven by stress. In fact, as I write this, I am unable to move my neck without significant pain, making it impossible to drive and painful even to sit holding my head in an upright position. However, rather than continuing to take painkillers, I'm asking myself what the pain is trying to tell me. It took only a few moments of reflection this morning to realise that it's pointing me towards a recent error of judgement. I'm usually good at being self-compassionate when I make mistakes, which I regularly do. But this happened over a month ago, and I've still not been able to shake off this particular error of judgement. Nobody had told me the information I was receiving was confidential, I had told myself, and by sharing it with my research team, we would be able to adapt our research to help the person who was sharing the information and his team, and develop wider public good. I trusted my team, and I told them to keep this to themselves, and yet, deep down, I knew that the information had been shared in a closed group, and had I asked permission to share it, I was not sure that the answer would have been yes. Looking back now, each of the physical warning signs I've described were present. I could feel that flutter of excitement in my chest as I realised that well, what this would mean for the impact of our research, and I was bursting to tell my team the news. There was a sense of self-importance as I composed my email, as though I, as though I was above the tacit rules that I knew I was breaking deep down. And yet, as I hovered over the send button, I could feel that tightening in my chest as a seed of doubt grew in my mind. It was telling me to wait and think about what I was doing. But before I could fully engage my mind, I'd pressed the button. And almost immediately, I knew I'd done the wrong thing. As far as I was aware, only one of the team uh, has actually read the email, and I apologised to her for my indiscretion when we spoke the following day. But that was not enough to assuage my guilty conscience, which was beginning to grow arms and legs. Now, guilt is a good thing when you've done something wrong. Without it, we'd keep doing wrong without remorse. My physical pain, however, was telling me that this had progressed from guilt to shame. And I was now subconsciously generalising from what I'd done wrong to a sense that I myself was fundamentally wrong. As a survivor of childhood abuse, shame regularly haunts me, and I can easily slip into old thought patterns without realising it. The result is that I have in the past blown up small issues into major catastrophes as I seek to publicly humiliate myself in a misguided attempt to seek forgiveness from bemused colleagues who tell me that they hadn't even noticed what I'd done or had long ago forgotten about whatever it was. 
And so as I have tackled the root cause of the shame that I've been mired in over these last few weeks, I've been able to see the issue for what it is, an error of judgment that belied a deeper pride I need to, to tackle. Repentance is about turning away from the wrongdoing and ensuring it can't happen again. And in this case, I would likely draw more attention to my unread email by trying to tackle it head-on than I would by letting, letting sleeping dogs lie and making sure I learned from my mistake. Part of what I have learned is that it is possible to detect my own inadvertent attempts to manipulate those around me by listening more deeply to my body. I hope that by sharing my experience today, you will be able to begin identifying your own embodied knowledge so you can identify the early warning signs before you make your own next error of judgment. But how do you get better at using this sort of knowledge? This isn't something that we're typically taught in formal education. However, for a leader who wants to be responsible as responsible as they are influential, this is an essential skill. So how do you do this in practice? How do you learn a skill that involves the body more than it does the brain? Well, we instinctively know the answer if we've learned to ride a bike or play a musical instrument. We have to practice. We need to use our muscles and they will feed back to our brains and tell us when we are in balance or at the right position on the fingerboard. The more we practice, the more effectively we can read our bodies and as the muscle memory develops, our body takes over without us having to even engage our conscious mind. In this case, we're exercising a mindfulness muscle. Instead of being fused with our experience minute to minute, we're able to stand back and observe ourselves and our emotions and be actively conscious of the moments we are inhabiting. If I am fused with my experience, when I feel nervous, I am nervous. But when I'm able to stand back from that experience, I'm able to observe that I'm feeling nervous and ask why, gaining enough perspective to notice that someone is sitting in the front row, reminding me of my mother. And now I can process that feeling rather than actively or uh, actively, sorry, rather than acting subconsciously out of it. To build this muscle, I've started taking 15 minutes in the morning and before I go to bed to try and just be present in the moment without thinking about my day, what I need to do next, or letting my mind wander into other random subjects. I've struggled with these sorts of practices ever since I was depressed and discovered evidence that mindfulness might help my recovery, but recently I discovered a phrase designed to keep me on task, and now I focus on my breath, saying one word as I breathe in, and the next as I breathe out, repeating over and over, I am here now in this. As a Christian, I like to ask, uh, uh, to, to add to the end of this, uh, a with you or an in you to the end, bringing an additional dimension uh, to that sense of presence that I get from the process. And I try and repeat this when I get a breathing space in the day, rather than reaching for my phone to fill the gaps. So combined with getting good sleep, the mental clarity, 
focus and calm this brings to my day is remarkable. Given how little time I spend in explicit practice, 15 minutes at the beginning of the day at the end, it's incredible. And the better I get at it, the more it becomes like freewheeling my bike instead of walking through my day. I no longer need to think about being mindful in the same way that I don't need to think about how to keep balanced as I freewheel my bike. I'm free to watch the landscape slide past and feel the wind in my face. And when there's a bump in the road, as there, will will, as there will inevitably be, the next time I'm faced with some ethical dilemma, I'll instinctively grip the handlebars and take responsibility for the direction I take. At the heart of the empathic leadership model is a humility that is simply about knowing who you are and being comfortable and present with that from moment.